Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the San Francisco Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we talk to John Cox. He's the Republican running for governor in California against Gavin Newsom. Now, at first you think of this is a contest against two, between two rich guys, but you might be surprised that a millionaire like Cox has had his struggles, and he talks about them and how his life was shaped by them and how it has shaped his political career. Find out what you think about John Cox next on It's All Political. John Cox, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you. Great to be with you, Joe. Yes, we're here at the uh, San Francisco Chronicle uh, recording it. And um, so we want to talk to you a little bit about your background. Uh, We're going to talk about policy, too, but I want to talk about background because it informs a lot of where you're coming from. And uh, also because some Californians may not know you. You moved to the state in 2011. So you're born in Chicago, correct? Yes. And your, your birth name was John Kaplan, correct? Yes. And you've said your, your mom was a single mom. And to hear her tell it, I, and I believe her, she was impregnated against her will, and he married her and he left. Right. When you're three months old. And that yeah. informs your views on abortion, Correct. Yeah, yeah. My mom would tell me that if abortion had been legal, she would have aborted me probably. And uh, I don't, I don't, I think I had a right to, to live. Yeah. And she was a younger mom, correct? Teenager? Yeah. Mom, I mean, she was in her late 30s. Oh, she was younger. Okay. Yeah. So she was, and she raised you. Um, and then uh, you said, and she got married a couple of years later, correct? About three she years later. She got remarried to my stepfather when I was, I guess, three and a half or four or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. really remember it. I mean, the earliest remembrance I have was probably about six years old. Six years old. And so, and he was physically abusive as well. Well, you know, he worked nights for the post office and he had two kids with my mom. And so I was the proverbial stepchild. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, he, he would he would be pretty physically abusive. But, uh, you know, to I you survived. and the other kids? No, just to me. Oh, just to you? Pretty wow. much. So, how, how did that shape the way you grew well, up? You, think? you know, listen, uh, we all go through difficult times in our lives and we overcome them. And I. Uh, hung around my mom a lot. You know, the good news was that he worked nights. I never really saw him there very much. Uh, he worked nights for the post office, so mm-hmm. he'd leave at 8 o'clock at night, come back at 7 in the morning, and, you know, I'd be going to school. Okay, so you didn't have a lot of contact with no, him. So no, not very little contact with him. So that's why you say you're you're essentially raised by your mom. For, yeah, very much so. Yeah. 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 Um, so then... You, uh, she was a school teacher, correct? Chicago public school teacher. She taught uh, at Calumet High School on the South Side, which, uh, interestingly enough, was the high school that she attended in the 30s, and she went back there in the 60s to teach. And she was a school li- librarian? She or? was a librarian, but she taught reading and okay. writing. And um, so she, um, you say you got your sort of first glimpse of corruption at when she was a public school teacher. Explain. Well, she used to complain about the principals at her schools. Mm -hmm. You know, she not only taught at Calumet, but she was at Waller and uh, Bogan and a few other schools in the Mm -hmm. South Side. And typically the principals would be friends of the aldermen. They had to have uh, political connections in order to get that position. And uh, my mom considered them unqualified. My mom was a pretty intelligent woman. She was a, uh, had two master's degrees from Berkeley. And uh, she, uh, she was a life master at bridge twice over, so she was a... She was a champion bridge player. She was, yeah. yeah. So Did she uh, she really knew her stuff. She was an inveterate reader. She uh, she would read a novel a night. She was one of the first speed readers, you know, the Evelyn Wood program. Yes, the Evelyn Wood. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So she taught me how to do that, too, and she instilled in me a, a love of reading. But, you know, uh, I saw firsthand uh, the, the corruption in those in those schools, and it really... It really, you know, put the notion in me that political corruption is something I have to fight against. And uh, I grew up a Democrat. Uh, the first race I ever fought was uh, against the Daily Machine in, yeah. in Chicago. I ran for delegate to the Democratic convention. Well, let's, let, let's get to that in a second, because um, uh, that's a, a another fascinating uh, part of your background. Yeah. So you... Uh, but so these 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 principals, they would basically. Did your mom want to be a principal? No, no. no but the, just, but they were arbitrary in terms of getting budgetary allocations to her. You know, to her library was very tough. Uh, they were arbitrary in terms of the hours and the supervision of other teachers. She felt 
Okay, so that's what, and they, they had a political connection to the aldermen, which, in, as we know, uh, Mayor Daly's uh, Chicago was, uh, uh, the, the, he was the original boss, uh, well, and let's boss. face it, you know, this was the south side of Chicago, which yeah. was usually given short shrift by this, you know, the administrations there anyway. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those kids, you know, it was all African-American in her high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, those kids were usually born with two strikes against them, right. you know, not having a father usually. And, yeah. and you know, obviously being African-American, you know, uh, and my mom felt that they just they just got short shrift uh, when it came to their education. And frankly, that exists to today, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing, and frankly, it's it's some of the same reasons. Uh, it's it's corruption again. And you saw that uh, growing up. You yeah. went to you went to college. Uh, when you came time for college, you said your family ran out, didn't have money for you to go to college. Is that my is older there? brother got through college and he he went to Illinois State. He got to go away, but I I there was no money when I was ready to go to college, and so I. Went to community college for the first year. Um, I took advanced placement exams and skipped a year and a half of college. Uh-huh. And uh, then I enrolled at the University of Illinois at Chicago Circle and finished my last uh, year and a half. So you at, at the age of 20? At correct? 20. Yeah. And then yeah. you you say so you worked your way through uh, college doing that. And you, you Yeah, I had two did, jobs. Two jobs. And one of them was is it playing tennis, teaching tennis? My brother had uh, embraced tennis, and it was the early 70s, yeah. and uh, tennis was just coming on, if you remember. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we would go out to the public parks and hand out our business card to people and charge $20 an hour for teaching tennis. And that was a lot more than my friends were making at McDonald's. Oh my God, so it yeah. Was great. Was, I, I worked at McDonald's at that era. Yeah, it was, it was, it was probably $2.50, $2. I believe, or an hour or something like that. A little bit later than that. Okay. So uh, tennis, and then what else did you do when you worked? Well, I was an accountant. Uh, I was a CPA by the time I was 20, so I would I would, I would do accounting. I, there was a paint finishing business I worked for, uh, an insurance agency I worked for, you mm-hmm. know, part-time jobs doing accounting. So why did you want to be an accountant? Uh, because I wanted to work. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. I've always wanted to be a lawyer since I was in grade oh, school. Oh, really? Why oh, was yeah. that? Uh, because I had a seventh grade teacher who told me I was pretty good at arguing. And uh, so <laughs> I find that hard to believe, knowing you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I mean, I, I read a lot, and I thought I knew what I would, would know, and I would discuss history with her, and I would argue uh, various points, and, you know. Uh, and so you felt, so you felt uh, that's what inspired that, like a seventh-grade teacher, you wanted to be yeah, a Yeah, a seventh-grade teacher, Florence Huff, never never forget her. Uh-huh. Ended up working with her son years later as a CPA, by the way. He was oh. my manager at Cooper's and Library. Oh, wow. So, so right after, uh, so you're 20 years old. You graduate, and did you go directly to law school, or did you work for a couple of years? No, I went directly into law school. I started in September of 76, uh, so I was barely 21. Wow. And so at this point, this is also kind of your political awakening at this time as well, correct? Yeah, uh, 76 was the, the convention. I ran for a delegate to the Democratic convention because uh, it was a slate that was opposing Richard Daley and the, and the machine politics. So you and... And it's also sort of an anti-Nixon uh, time well, at that point yeah, too. Sure it's it like was. you know, it was a lot of corruption on the Republican side. So, and your and your mom was a lifetime Democrat, lifetime Democrat, yeah, union member, union member. So, why what attracted you to the Democrat Party at that point? It was the only one I knew. My mom was a lifelong Democrat. Uh, all my family were Democrats. And I didn't really even know much about the Republican Party at that juncture. Wow. Okay, and then did you go to the convention? Were you done? No, again? I didn't make it. You didn't uh, make it. The Daily Machine, you know, plowed us under. So you know, so, so, so wow. <laughs> they, they were a machine. You know, they were called a machine for a reason. Yes. Yeah, so, so you didn't. <laughs> but you voted for Jimmy Carter, correct? I did vote for Jimmy Carter. And why was that? Well, you know, as a Democrat and watching what you know Richard Nixon had done in terms of you know use of the FBI and things, and you know, I just felt that uh, that, that that kind of corruption was something I had fought against again, and uh, Jimmy Carter said that he wouldn't lie to me. Uh, he didn't tell me he was a lousy manager. Uh, <laughs> I'd find that out later. But but he didn't uh, lie, at least. <laughs> but at least he wouldn't lie to us. Yeah. Yes. Did, and then um, uh, what did that, that first taste of politics do for you? I loved it. Uh, I love people. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved the idea of making a difference. My mom had always instilled that in me. I mean, when I was a kid, Joe... Uh, I would imitate John F. Kennedy, and and John F. Kennedy asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country is is certainly to me a call for our uh, for all people to to do something for other people. Don't just you know do something for yourself. 
you know, ask what you can do for your country and your community. And you could, you would walk around the house in a as a little kid with a, in a tie, correct? Yeah. And a white shirt and tie. I did. I was maybe you're six very, years old. Wow. Okay. You're I mean, a very nerdy, is, you know, John Cox, the young, yeah. just a young child. Yeah. Right? But were you, were you? But you, what did you identify with Kennedy about? Well, it's because my mom loved Kennedy. And okay. As a six-year-old, you know, and, and you know. Knowing my mom is my only source of support and everything right. at that point in time, you know, uh, I really enjoyed pleasing my mom. Okay. I'm sure you did when you were six years old. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, so then uh, when you're also, so you're a young, young guy now, and then when you're 24, you uh, accepted Christ in your life, became a Christian. Accurate? Uh, actually, yes, I was 24 years old. And how, how did that, were, were you religious before that or not? Yeah, I, I grew up without a religion, and uh, but I became a Catholic, my first wife, who was Catholic, and I, you know, secretly, uh, you know, was baptized. Uh, and, and learned the faith, and then uh, I uh, just a, a lawyer sat down next to me, and you know could see that he could see the bags under my eyes. I was, I was working eighty hours a week. Uh, oh, I was working sixty hours a week as a CPA, and then I was going to law school at night. Uh, it was pretty tough, and uh, so we, we talked, and I accepted Christ, and you know haven't so, looked back. And you just. Uh... You, how did you, where'd you, where'd you meet? This is a lawyer you just met on the, uh, yeah, did you meet him on the, the train? Just met him on the train. Really? So you just struck up a conversation and then he... Yeah, more like he struck up a conversation with me, but it was great. You yeah, know, yeah. A wonderful guy. Lou Bland is his name. And you, uh, so you became a Christian then. Do you, And so what's, what faith do you... Well, I'm a Catholic. You're a Catholic. Okay. Yeah. So you were you married at that time or not? Yeah. Okay, you were married. Yeah, married in 77. Okay. And you were, uh, and you had uh, kids right away? No, wait until after I was done with law school. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, I wanted to make sure I was a, you know, a, a father who could a, a devote provider, a attention. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and so a provider. Yeah, hard to work two jobs and go to law school and I, I, be a father. I can't imagine that. So, so you're, so you start, um, you're a CPA. You get your law degree, mm-hmm. and then you start your own business. Correct. Yeah, I did. What was the business? Basically, a law and accounting firm. I, I was doing tax returns for people and doing wills and trusts and pension plans and things like that. And this this uh, firm is just is basically you and your first wife, correct? Yeah, when I mean, you first did, started, she did uh, bookkeeping and secretarial th- functions for okay. me. And, you know, and then you uh, tell us how you grew the business. Well, you know, I just went out and met people and saw you know small businesses basically that needed help, and I could deliver it less expensively than a lot of big firms. And uh, first thing I did was I bought a computer. And really? I was what was the, it? Uh, it was a digital computer, $10,000 for this computer. Oh, my God. It, that's in 1981. Yeah. So I, it used every ounce of my savings, every penny. Uh, but I, I, I knew I had to be more uh, technologically uh, ahead of my competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time I was 30 years old, I had 13 lawyers working for me, and I had one secretary. She mainly answered the phone. Everybody did all their own work on a network of Macintosh computers. Wow, which is unusual at that, uh, in that uh, era. Almost unheard of in yeah. 1987. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, computer, personal computers really didn't get going until the 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, you, uh, and then when did you get into uh, the um, real estate business? Well, you know, at, at Coopers and Lybrand, the law for, or the accounting firm that I'd worked at, I represented a number of uh, real estate syndication outfits, uh, including one he- headed by Jerry Reinsdorf, who now owns the Bulls mm-hmm. and the and the uh, uh, and the uh, what was it? oh the White Sox, he owns the White, the White Sox, Sox, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I learned the real estate business inside and out, you know, at least the accounting and, and legal side of it, and. Uh, so I decided to start doing that myself, and I, you know, started with some two, three flats in the uh, suburbs of Chicago, Oak Park, mm-hmm. and then uh, in 1985 I bought my first building uh, outside O'Hare Airport. Had to get financing from the seller because interest rates were so high, and uh, I still own that property. It's a beautiful property, and I've refinanced it five times and just wow. rehabbed it, completely rehabbed it three years ago. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful, affordable housing. And it's uh, so. How many units at this point do you own? About twenty seven hundred. Twenty seven hundred, mostly in Illinois and Indiana, correct? Yeah, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky. 
Wow. And so the the uh, so you have the real estate firm and the law firm and the accounting firm. Yep. Okay. And that's and then how about there's also a venture capitalist arm. I've done a little arm. venture capital. I bought a snack food company in Chicago once. Uh, I bought part of a toy company, a toy design company that uh, was pretty you know you know fun. And that is at the same time you you started the venture capital firm. No, that was a little bit later. When was that? Oh, probably in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. And most of the investments are in the tech sector or in the... No, they're not. I wouldn't say tech. tech No, no, no. I mean, a toy design company designed, you know, little bouncy balls and, you know, dolls and things like that, but it was very successful. Did, Did you like that? The, it was the, fun. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, venture capital is, is a lot of fun. I mean, uh, obviously, I'd be a, a, a lot wealthier if I had started it out here <laughs> in, in Silicon Valley. It's interesting. My, my grandparents retired to Mountain View in 1968, 50 years ago. They, um, my aunt taught at Stanford. Oh, wow. So, so they moved out here from Chicago. And that started the wave of, you know, coming to California for my family. Uh, I'm actually the last member of my family to be here. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've got that because you, you have uh, multiple. I have a lot of relatives here. Uh, relatives oh, yeah. here, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, okay, so you're 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 building your business in the '80s. You're building your family, uh, and you. But you're you um, went. You got your first marriage ended around that time, correct? Uh, in the mid '90s, mid '90s, late. You, 90s. But you're married for what twenty years? Tw- twenty-two years. Twenty-two years, and you have three daughters yeah. from that marriage. Three daughters. Yep. Okay. And then you got that married annulled, correct? I, I did. I went through an annulment process in the Catholic Church. Um, the um, and uh, but you're on good terms with your first wife. Yeah, we just went out to dinner at Christmas with the girls. Oh, really? Okay. And she lives in California, or no? She's back in Illinois. She's in Chicago. Okay. Um, so then, at this point, this is when you kind of. Uh, left the Democratic Party, should we say, or well, because when you start doing other people's taxes, you're just yeah. like, oh my God! Jesus, when I started working, yeah, when I started working at Cooper's Library in, in the late '70s, it was '77, I believe I started working with them, uh, and uh, they, uh, you know, I was doing tax returns for people that paying taxes at rates of seventy percent. And they were investing in really stupid things to try to avoid those taxes. And I thought, gee, this is dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Reagan and Jack Kemp came along and said, gee, what if we cut out some of these tax shelters and cut out the deductions and drop the tax rates? We'd get more investment. We'd get more economic growth. We would rekindle the economy. Uh, Jimmy Carter at that point was telling us we would never be able to turn on Christmas lights ever again. We were going to have peak oil. We were going to have to walk around in a cardigan and and uh, Ronald and 14% Reagan. 14% uh, interest rates, 14% correct? interest rates. Yeah. Inflation was going nuts, uh, you know, and, and Reagan and Kemp came along and said, gee, if we knock down tax rates, if we reduce regulation, we get the economy going, more people are working, and, and darn it, if that didn't happen. I mean, that really did happen. The 80s... This, the economy turned around. We got unprecedented growth and a lot of investment. And frankly, uh, that's the kind of thing we need to do again. So that kind of uh, reignited your political interest then, correct? Well, I was always there. But yeah. uh, frankly, I became a Republican. I voted for Reagan. You voted for Reagan uh, both times? Absolutely. Okay. And then you got uh, involved with Jack Kemp's campaign, actually, correct? I did. You were on the steering committee, uh, national steering committee? National steering committee, yeah. And uh, what, was, uh, what did that do for you? Well, it was fun. It was yeah. interesting. Uh, Jack Kemp was a guy who talked about ideas. <clears throat> he talked about giving people a hand up, not a hand out, mm-hmm. uh, but, but giving people the training and the opportunity. He came up with enterprise zones, which we now call <clears throat> opportunity zones, and we're doing them today. Mm-hmm. Jack's no longer with us, but his ideas, uh, I think, you know, stood the test of time. He was also for immigration. He, he always talked about the, you know, the Russian cab driver or the Chinese hand laundry that you know people came here and and you know started their own business and you know grabbed a piece of the American dream. I think that's, that's the secret sauce. That's the reason this country has done so much better than any other country in the world because. We've always welcomed immigrants to our shores and given them the opportunities. Now, you uh, originally were not for border walls, but that's changed. Are you, you well, were for I, the I, president's border walls? I now live in San Diego, and I see the drugs and the gangs and the human trafficking that goes across there. I mean, a few months ago, they picked up a bunch of people that were stuffed in, the, in a horse trailer uh, crossing the border. And, 
you know, the coyotes and all the people that make money off of this stuff are just, you know, obnoxious. But do you uh, think, and you think a wall would stop that? I hope it would, uh, but maybe uh, certainly not the only thing. They, yep. they, they tunnel under walls too, and they and they go around the shore. But at least it's something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the trouble really, Joe, is that we've got a country to the south of us that is pretty much ungoverned. I mean, let's face it, Mexico is twenty six thousand murders last year. I think that was the number. Mm. I mean, they're about a third of the size of us, so that would be like eighty thousand murders in this country. Do you think if we had eighty thousand murders in our streets, we would finally do something? Mm-hmm. I mean. But Mexico is still, you know, struggling, and and I think we we got to make sure we protect our people here. And going back to where you are in your in your point there, you started running for office. You ran for when you're still in Illinois. You're I was always interested in in countering the corruption, and and frankly, that's that's you know part of what I've always wanted to do. Ran for Congress in uh, the Chicago area. Yeah. You ran for uh, Senate uh, against. Someone else we'll, we'll get to in a minute. And you ran for, uh, <laughs> uh, you're the Cook County Republican Party chair, which is kind of like being the San Francisco County Republican Party chair, correct? Well, in not terms exactly, of, because there are a lot more Republicans in Cook County than in San Francisco that's pro- County. That's probably true. A yes. lot more. Yeah. What'd we you probably get the had yeah. a million and a half Republicans, Yeah, but we probably had three million Democrats, yeah. so I yeah. was still outnumbered. That's a, better, that's a better ratio than here. It is. Yeah. So what did you, what did you learn by that experience? Well, you know, I learned that the power of money and the power of corruption is pretty strong. And, you know, you're going to have to really work hard to fight it. Uh, Listen, uh, I think corruption is the biggest evil of our time. Uh, We've conquered communism to some degree. Um, I thought we'd conquered socialism. I thought we'd thrown that on the ash heap of history. It's making a big comeback. It's making a comeback in in the other party, which I can't (laughs) understand. I mean... If anybody looks at Venezuela today, I can't believe that they would actually think that socialism is a is a suitable economic system. It just yeah. isn't. I mean, it, it sounds nice, you know, making sure everybody else, you know, making sure everybody has food and healthcare and stuff. You know, it's it's an attractive thing. I get that, but it's never worked, and it just doesn't work. So, uh, but corruption it, is still with us. And so, but it, but the driving you in each of these campaigns is is the corruption that you yeah. see in Cook County, that you see in Illinois, the state of Illinois. Absolutely. And so that's and you and you want to sort of get out the money, get the money out of politics. I want to get the money out of politics. I want people to have affordable housing, affordable health care. I believe these things happen when we have a robust free market. Joe, I charge the uh, most I can considering the competition that I have. And if I have a lot of competition, I'm going to have to reduce my prices. I can't charge $1,000 an hour as a lawyer if my competition's at $500 an hour. And it's not a race to the bottom. It's about being able to function in a free market where the, the prices are reasonable and people have the wherewithal to afford my services. But on, on health care, we, we kind of let the free market Govern things no, for no, many we years. Haven't. Well, we did before before Obamacare. <laughs> there was there was the, the no. free market runs a lot of the the healthcare in the country, for, aside from Medicare. Well, you know, we could but, spend but, hours talking yeah, about free, but it's but it's it has it didn't work there. It didn't bring costs down there. What what would what would you do different? Oh, I put patients in charge. I put doctors in charge. I mean, when we have doctors advertise and and when we have hospitals advertise. Uh, I think we'll solve the healthcare crisis in this country. Uh, the trouble we have is we have all these cross subsidization uh, schemes that are put on us by government, and they really take the free market out of the picture. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think health insurance ought to be portable. It ought to be more available. We ought to have more than three competitors. I mean, that's really all Californians have is maybe three insurance companies. In, in many counties, only one. And only one. Yeah. Well, you, you wonder why prices are so high and why service is so bad. You know, try to call an insurance company, get an approval on something. When when we have multiple competitors, they're all function a whole lot better. They'll all try to make themselves more affordable, and we'll all get a better service. Before before we leave your Illinois uh, chapter of your life, uh, <laughs> we have to we have to mention two things. One. Tell people who don't know who you ran for against uh, again, when you ran for the Senate. You ran against an unknown. Well, Peter yeah. Fitzgerald <laughs> retired, and I was interested in running. You know, I mean, listen, I was I like people. I liked uh, the idea of 
having a, a, a say in the, in the political process, and, and I was a businessman, but I wanted to do it. And so I jumped into the primary to run uh, for that seat, and Barack Obama was also in that primary. And you, you shared a debate stage with him, correct? Several. Yeah. How'd yeah. that go? What, what, what was he like? Tell He's, us about Obama I, in I those days. I still consider him a friend of these days. I, really? He visited the uh, the place where I live, and uh, I saw him a, a few years ago when he was president. Yeah, sure. Yeah. What was, he, what, what was he like? Is he a de- decent he, guy from from your perspective? A, a very nice guy, frankly. Uh, you know, I no problems with him personally. Yeah. I mean, I would disagree with him on yeah. most things, and uh, you know, uh, he's a middling debater, I would say. Would you, how was he? Uh, would you, no, how do you I remember? Think he was actually was, a decent was, was, debater, okay? but okay. but you know, but his position on healthcare and education, which we most, mostly debated, was that government is needed to make decisions for people and and I think people can make their own decisions yeah. and so that's that's what it comes down to he thinks government should be there to do everything for everybody i think government you know should be there to protect us and should be there to make sure that we don't hurt each other and you know things like that but right. I think uh, people can make their own decisions about health care and education so and one of the th- you also ran for president when you were there yeah, that was a little bit of a lark. I mean, now, that was fun. What, what made you think you, you've lost these other races? What made you think you could run for president? Well, I was upset with George Bush. I, I thought yeah. George Bush was was spending way too much money. He was expanding uh, programs in government that were bad. I thought that he mishandled the Iraq War uh, to a great degree. And uh, so uh, I was, I was, you know, ahead of my time, apparently. Uh, <laughs> Herman Cain, you know, was a businessman who ran in 2012. Yeah. Um, and I ran as a businessman in 2008, uh, but I, you know, Herman probably had more of a national presence than I did. I was just a local businessman in Chicago, but I, you know, went out there and gave a couple speeches and talked about how, you know, real conservative Republicans, you know, feel that the market is better for things, and it was and fun. did you, uh, and why did you decide to, to drop out of that race? You know, I wasn't getting anywhere. The the media excluded me from the debates. Uh, although I got into a couple of debates, but uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a huge field too. It was like the one. It was a huge field, field and like fifteen you know. people or something like that. So you, um, how and so your businesses are going strong here. What? How big are all their businesses? Like I've heard, two hundred million dollars. Is that an accurate figure? Well, the assets of the businesses are about two hundred million. The assets of the business. Yeah, but we have liabilities too, so the net worth isn't two hundred million. Okay. Um, and you've only released one year of your tax returns so far. It said you made two million bucks in 2016 and 17, mostly from investments of all these businesses. Newsom's uh, has released several years of tax returns. Two two years, I'm sorry. You've re- released two years, 2016, 2017. And Jerry Brown never released. He never any. released any. So let's Pete make Wilson. that clear. Okay, we'll release, and we'll make it clear <laughs> that Pete Wilson released his. But whatever, you know, the point is I'm a private individual and I have a lot of businesses with a lot of partners and people that, that, that didn't bargain to have their information shared and, right. and I don't think it's reasonable. So you're not going to release any more? No, I, I, released, I released enough to give people an idea of where my income comes from and what my deductions are. I'm sure people are always interested in how much I give to charity. I mean, that's a point of curiosity, yes. if nothing else. And I think I'm reasonably charitable. I'm not going to say I'm the most charitable person in the world, but I... I think, you know, it averages a, a good amount. And did uh, if you were elected, would you release more? No. No, I'm, I'm, a, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm entitled to my privacy just like everybody else. Even as a public figure? Well, I'm, I, my businesses aren't in California. It's not relevant to anything I do uh, as a uh, public official. So you moved to California in 2011. Why did you move out here? Yeah, I bought the house in 2007, but I was part-time uh, until 2011. And, and you're in uh, uh, Rancho Santa Fe. In Rancho San Diego Santa Canyon. Fe. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wanted to, my family's all out here. Um, my mom retired to Fresno in 1980, and my brother and sister live here. Two aunts that live here, cousins. Everybody's still living, correct? No, my mom died in 2000. Okay. My Aunt Jewel just passed last year, so um, lost two. Hmm. But... Uh, but yeah, you know, my my brother and sister are still here, and my and you, cousins. And you see them uh, fairly regularly. Yeah, reasonably. Are they working for the campaign? Most important. No, no not they, at all. They, Come they, on, my, it's my cheap labor, John. Nice, what are you thinking? They're not. Well, no, they, have a, they yeah. have a life to live. I mean, they'll <laughs> get. The, 
<laughs> you put him on the a, payroll. That's the political way. My sister's a nurse, and she loves doing that. And my brother's a uh, small businessman in Fresno. He loves doing that. So you moved out here for family or for just because you wanted someplace? Family, and I wanted to live somewhere warm. I mean, I didn't want to yeah. live you know, in Chicago. Uh, I'd had 50 years of that and shoveling enough snow and... That kind of thing. So I wanted to, you know, raise my daughter. I have a, I have a 13-year-old daughter mm-hmm. now, and so my wife and I decided that we would settle in uh, Southern California. And, and your second uh, wife, Sarah, you've been married for how many years? 16 years. 16 years. So... 16 wonderful years. Six, there so. you go. Way yes. to go. She, she will, if, she's, if she's made it this Listen, far, you, she wants she to hear the good shout She put up with me out. for yes, that yes, long. Yes. God love her. Give her I'll a tell shout you out. What, the the um, charity of women knows no <laughs> ends, let me tell you. <laughs> now, the, um, you start getting into politics here... Not necessarily initially, did you? Because the no. first time I think I met you was standing on, in front of the uh, California Democratic Party uh, convention in Sacramento, which I thought which was a great stunt and it was a great ballot measure, um, where you were standing outside with a bunch of people dressed in, was it, I think it was white coats, and they were wearing, wearing uh, various logos of companies. Yeah. yeah. And this is a ballot measure you, you wanted to put on the ballot in 2016. And it would have required politicians to wear the corporate logos of all their donors, like on their jackets. They'd have to wear special jackets. Well, you know, like, it's interesting. I came out here, Joe, to, to not to, to raise my daughter and right. you know have fun, you know, enjoy the California lifestyle. And yeah. then I, I found out about ballot initiatives, which I didn't really pay that much attention to, mm-hmm. having grown up in Illinois. And right. and I thought, wow, we don't have these in Illinois, by the way. They don't. You, know, you can't change the constitution there as easily you know you'd have to much more fungible here in california definitely yes uh, direct democracy you know, yes. it's a good thing yeah. so i thought gee maybe some of my ideas about getting money out of politics and you know working against corruption could work in california because you can do ballot initiatives and change yeah. the constitution so uh you know I, i've been working on something called the neighborhood legislature which is a way of i think a, a good way of getting money out of politics um but then I, you know, we had this idea to have the, uh, which actually Bill Maher had actually done. I don't know if you know that. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah, Bill Maher had done this as a comedy bit a while back and put a, co- a coat on with all the decals, just like NASCAR drivers. And Is I that thought, where you got the idea from? Yeah. Or? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And so you 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 dropped. You'll probably hit me for a royalty now. Yeah. Or something. <laughs> You you dropped a couple of thousand dollars on this. Um, what did you what did you get out of that? That was your first kind of taste well, of California know, listen, politics, the right? The reason I did that, Joe, was to illustrate the absurdity of our system. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is absurd. It was I mean, a great visual, I must say. It was a great visual, yeah. but it was meant to demonstrate the absurdity. I mean, we have all these politicians, and all they do is raise money, and you know they have to obviously then vote the way that those people want them to vote. Or they have to be fearful of the money that comes in. Right, and we see that all the time. We, we see, see it, it all, all the time, the time in which politics. is why we still have tenure. Why does a fourth-grade teacher need tenure? Why is it so difficult to fire a fourth-grade teacher that is not doing the job? Not, it, not that they're all doing bad jobs. There's The vast majority are doing wonderful jobs. But if you've got a, one that's doing, not doing the job, you should be able to move them on to a different career. And you're saying that's because of the power of the teachers' union? California. Absolutely. Yeah, which, you know, I am I, not against unions at all, but I think it's just wrong that, that a lot of these uh, you know, people, uh, you know, use political power. And frankly, it's not just labor. It's also business that does the same thing. And so you, uh, that, that was a, a way to sort of, you know, when you're in Illinois, you had to kind of, as a Republican, you had to fight against the Democratic machine, as you've outlined several times here. But in California, you could... You could, you could sort of make your point outside the system through this through this process, correct? Well, the ballot initiative process yeah. is a way for ordinary voters to have a say. Absolutely. So now you, a uh, year and a half ago, I guess it is now, a year ago, you decided to run for governor. Oh, a couple years ago. A couple years ago. Is that how long it's been? My God. Yeah, yeah, we're in 2018, Joe. Yes, I, so I, I got to change that calendar. Early, early 2016, I thought, well, gee, I, you know, I've been working on this ballot initiative and I've been, I'm also watching this state continue to descend. I mean, I just, you look at the, the cost of living here, you look at the schools, our schools are now 44th in the nation or something like that. Uh, people can't afford gasoline, they can't afford housing, they can't afford electricity. Mm-hmm. Our electricity rates are double what they are in a lot of other states. Uh, the cost of a house, rents are just out of control. Uh, fire, there's no forest management to speak of. Uh, you know, we have fires threatening us. I mean, this state has really been descending for a long time. And 
I just thought the time was right uh, in early 2016. I made, made laid plans to do something about it. And why did you, uh, why get running for governor? What? Because I wanted to have a say in what was going to happen to the state. I thought my business expertise and the, the experiences that I had had growing up, you know, coming up from nothing, you know, would I think give people, you know, some comfort that I had empathy for people who are struggling uh, because I struggled. And I think that's something we all should, you know, have uh, as public officials. Uh, they all should have empathy for the people that struggle in this world. And I, I looked at what the political class was doing to the people of this state, literally doing to them, um, making this life unaffordable. This is a, just a wonderful place to live. And there's a thin layer of people that are doing real well, but most everybody else is just struggling. They're working two jobs. They're saving almost no money. They're living in cracker box apartments. They're paying through the nose in rents. Uh, this is just no way to run a state, and the political class here doesn't want to answer to it. And you're, uh, you, you have a, I, I think that's a, it's a really strong core message that you have where the, you have the, the Democrats basically own this. They, they run the state. They uh, have owned every statewide office. Uh, they have the, uh, um, you know, they, the majority of the state's voters are Democrats. The, uh, but the, the, we have the nation's highest poverty rate, the highest, uh, ho- most homeless. So what would you do different? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's so many things. First of all... On homelessness. uh, Well, on homelessness, we've got to get people help. I mean, I just walked to Starbucks here while I was waiting here for for this interview, and my God, I saw people living on the streets, basically, and, you know, uh, several looked like they were on drugs or, you know, not, you know, really with it. And, my God, a, a compassionate society can't let people just sit and suffer on the streets. I don't think that's a life. Uh, it's certainly not a, a good solution to just give them a clean needle and a room to shoot up in. Uh, if you know, if my own children were out there, I'd get them help, and I think that's what a compassionate society would do. So sp- specifically, what would you do? Because I've, I've been looking on your policy website, and it's it's beefed up a little bit lately. But here's what it says, just on homelessness. You said in Gavin Newsom, San Francisco. By the way, you mentioned Newsom seven times on your on your policies. <laughs> your he policy. is my opponent, Joe. I mean, <laughs> he epitomizes the political class that's led this state down the hill. I mean, please. I mean, isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? In Gavin Newsom, San Francisco. The playgrounds are littered with drug needles, and the sidewalks are covered with human feces. Instead of fixing the root problem, they've just hired 130,000 a year for poop police, which is what's isn't actually, that true? It is actually absolutely absolutely true okay. here in San Francisco. To walk around the streets with shovels—that's not policy. It's an admission of defeat. But you don't really spell out what cleaning you would, up is yeah. not going to do the problem. What you got to do is you got to treat the illness. You got to treat mental illness. You've got to treat drug and alcohol abuse. Now, some number of those that are homeless are, are priced out of their homes. We got to build apartments. We got to build homes for people. And, and so, how much would you build them affordably? To do that? How would you raise the money to do that? Well, Where would the money come uh, let's from? end a train to nowhere that my opponent is now in favor high, of high speed rail. You're speaking of uh, yeah. slow speed boondoggle. I would call it, Joe. Come on. I mean, this is, it, it's, it's, it's going to be three hours. It was supposed to be two hours. I mean, it's, it's being built where nobody's going to ride it. It's uh, 30-year-old technology. It's not even current technology. It's just an incredible waste of money. And, boy, I tell you, Joe, I grew up without money. I don't waste it. And I'm certainly not going to do that as governor. So let's take some of those resources. Let's use them to get people off the street and, and, and into facilities where they can get cured. Let's also use some of that money for some desalination so we can have water, so we don't have to have water rationing. Build some reservoirs so we can store some water. We can do that without killing fish. I absolutely believe we can do that. Uh, I'm... I'm sensitive to the environment, but let's balance the two. Well, where would you would you readjust the tax structure to get more money? Well, listen, I think our tax structure is doomed to failure, frankly. We get such a, a big share of our tax revenue from a thin layer of the population. And let me tell you, they're giving up. The new tax law that was passed federally, and again, I have nothing to do with that, mm-hmm. but it, it makes it non-deductible. So now people are paying 13% non-deductible. They're, they're leaving. They're buying places in Incline Village or Austin, Texas. You know, I've had friends move out of state. So 
you know, they're gonna, there's going to be a rude awakening for the next governor. And, uh, you know, I plan on dealing with that. And so, but how would you, what I'm trying to get at is where, where would you get the money for these plants? Well, first of all, we got to stop wasting it. We spend twice what Texas does to build uh, highways. I think last year we spent $6 billion on overtime for state employees. Uh, we're spending $500 million to house 700 developmentally and intellectually uh, challenged uh, adults. $500 million for 700 people. So Think how about would you, that. how would you change things there? Well, we would, we would spend money wisely. We could you know, use that money in so many other ways to help intellectually and developmentally p- challenged people and, and at the same time have money left over. There are so many instances of waste going on in this government that there's 300 boards and commissions that have probably outlived their usefulness and ought to be terminated. Um, we just need to you know, use our money wisely, and we need to develop some solutions to some of these problems. I'm telling you right now, the housing crisis, Joe, is probably the biggest of all the crisis we have How right do you, now. You're, you're a builder. You have, I'm a builder. You have 20, yeah. 2,700 units. Uh, uh, what um, would you do differently? You, no. said, you said you would want Why to Why is reform- it that I can build a, a, an apartment in Indiana for $80,000, and that same apartment in the Bay Area is 700000 you're going to tell me it's the land, and that's not true, actually. The land is actually a relatively small part of the purchase price. You know, the difference between 100000 an acre and a $1 million an acre is only going to add uh, maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 to the price of, of, of an apartment. Mm. The big difference is red tape, litigation, mandates, delays, all these other costs that are d- directly related to governmental uh, interference. And my mission is going to be to streamline processes, still make sure we have standards, but streamline these processes. The CEQA law is... is CEQA is a big part of it, big, huge part of it. But there's others as well. There's mandates and red tape that's imposed on builders. Uh, That's why a lot of the builders have left, frankly. They've gone to other states like Texas and Nevada, and they're building there. Newsom has put a target on how many units he wants to build, which sure. is which is uh, and, and you know what he's doing. Never, it's never been that target has never been hit in the history of California. Well, wait a minute. Not only that, he's only going to do it with bonds that are going to add more debt. You know, we're already the most indebted nation in the in our state in the nation, and he wants to add more debt. And you know, he's going to subsidize a few people, but that doesn't do a darn thing about the cost. If you float debt and you're subsidizing building at seven hundred thousand a unit, you're adding debt and you're not addressing the cost difference. So how would you how would you do that? I, I just told you regulation, litigation, delay, speed up the approval process, streamline the litigation, make sure we have standards, but make sure that things are done a lot quicker and a lot less costly. That'll bring down the cost along with competition. You know more supply on healthcare. Newsom has uh, said he's he wants to move towards. Medicare for all. You uh, on your policy website, you said if you think access to health quality health care is tough now, imagine if the DMV was in charge. If Gavin Newsom gets his way, one of seven references, uh, expect the same long lines at the doctor's waiting room as at your local DMV office. And since prices will be set by the politicians, the lobbyists will have uh, field day padding their bills, longer lines, et cetera, et cetera. So how Seriously, would you? We, Joe. we talked about. Low, you lowering costs. How else would you would you lower costs? It seems like nothing we do lowers costs. Everybody in the state has to go to the DMV, basically, and look at what they're doing. They're making people wait four or five hours. They're using a computer system that's thirty years old. The reason we have a great healthcare system is because we have innovation. We have wonderful companies and individuals, and uh, all through the healthcare industry, that every single day try to innovate. The reason they innovate is because there's a profit motive. I'm sorry. People are motivated by profit. They're motivated by individual advancement. That's just the way of the world. That's what capitalism is all about. And you can criticize capitalism all you want and think that socialism is the way to go. But if you look at the world history, you'll see that quickly that socialistic countries like Venezuela don't do anywhere near as well as capitalists. Mm-hmm. So what we ought to do is return capitalism and free markets to the healthcare system. We've got to get more competition, more insurance company competition, more hospital competition, more clinic competition. We've got to look at ways of delivering service that have worked elsewhere. 
Uh, I've talked to the governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum, who's a technologist. He started Great Plains Software. He's introducing telemedicine into North Dakota. It's working very well. Why can't we do that here? There's a lot of litigation, a lot of trial lawyers that don't like it. There's a lot of you know issues that we have to overcome with that. Usually regulation and litigation is, is in the way. Well, let's let's get more innovation uh, associated with healthcare. Let's let's bring the cost of delivering that service down. The other thing is, as governor, you may have to uh, preside over the death penalty. Uh, as a Catholic, uh, you're very, as you said earlier, you're very anti-abortion. What are, where are you on the death penalty? I'm personally opposed to uh, death penalty, as I am to abortion, and but I'll carry out the law. Just like I do with, will yes. with abortion, which is in the Constitution of California, by the way. Yes. Uh, and I'll do it with the death penalty. I'll carry out the law. And um, your critique of uh, oh, one other thing we, when we we did a story today on the environment, and I was uh, a bit surprised to learn that you are uh, you're, well, I knew you're opposed to offshore, offshore drilling, but you're also okay with the new targets to uh, be uh, uh, free of uh, fossil fuels by was it twenty. 45 or something well, like that. Well, wait a minute. I am I am in favor of cleaning the air completely. I'm in, I'm in favor of electric cars. I drive one. Yes. Uh, a Tesla, know, correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to it's a great car. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to hand out subsidies to cronies either, which has mm-hmm. characterized this push. Uh, but I don't want to do that all that on the backs of the working poor. I mean, the people of this state have suffered we're paying twice what other states are paying for electricity. As a matter of fact, we're producing so much solar electricity that we have to pay Arizona on certain days to take excess electricity. That is coming out of the pockets of the average forgotten Californians, Joe. We have got to take account of the fact that we have made this state, or that the political class, I should say, has made this, cl- this state unaffordable for people. And that's a reckoning that this state has to you know, uh, get a hold of. And I am committed to doing something about it. Now, let's clean the air. Frankly, you know, uh, people like, you know, politicians like Gavin Newsom have failed miserably in terms of cleaning the air because they have not managed the forests. You know, the forest fires that we have had have dumped way more carbon into the air than all the cars and trucks for a full year. And they've just sat back and they said, oh, gee, this is climate change. Well, I'm sorry. Let's adapt. The climate's changing. Let's adapt. Let's manage the situation. Let's make sure that we clean out dead and diseased trees. Let's make sure we clear brush. You know, we are still flying 1970s-era helicopters to deliver retardant Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. water. So so picture this, Joe. We're spending billions on a train to nowhere that nobody's going to ride. That's fattening the pockets of a whole bunch of contributors and at the same time we're denying basic equipment to cal fire mm. uh, one more thing uh want to do uh, i hope we sure? talk about education because it is absolutely obscene and criminal what we're doing to our young people with an education system okay. that's 44 give us in the real country. quick what would you do different oh uh, increase options for parents my uh, opponent more wants charter to, schools more and... charter schools he wants to kill charter schools don't kid yourself He's in the pocket of the teachers' union, another special interest that wants to see him governor. And, of course, he wants to be president, so he needs the teachers' union for that, too. I want to fix California. I want a, a, an education system that we can be proud of. I want teachers to get merit pay and to be treated like professionals for a change. How do you, how do, you do that when you when the teachers' union is so powerful? What get would you the, do? I, when, and you're, you're likely going to have a legislature that is going to be you know, near two-thirds Democrat. I'm going to work with them as much as I can, Joe, and, yeah. and but I'm going to talk about the neighborhood legislature. I'm going to talk Ooh. about replacing them and get a legislature that represents us and not the special interests. Yeah. That's something I think the people of this state are going to be very interested in. And uh, you also want to add real quick that you are opposed to the gas tax. Uh, you, want to, you want to overturn the gas tax. That's a very big part of your campaign. Which says everything about California you need, to, you need to know. Instead of fixing the system, instead of making Caltrans more efficient, they raise the gas tax, putting people more into poverty. That's obscene. It's criminal. We're going to repeal that tax. We're going to build a lot of roads. 
because we're going to use the money efficiently, just like the, I from do. From the existing Caltrans budget. Oh, we've yes. got more than enough money to build wonderful roads, but we're going to do it efficiently and productively and in a quality fashion, which is exactly what I do in my businesses. You, uh, and you, one more thing, you, you, your critique of Newsom is that he is long funded by the Getty Oil Fortune, which we wrote at the Chronicle many years ago. Sure. Uh, and uh, he's, he's had living, a silver spoon life. Le- le- <laughs> no, really, his really childhood truly. was not silver spoon entirely. Oh, his parents' divorced, but he basically grew up at country clubs and things. I mean, I, I didn't even know what a country club was until I was in my 30s. <laughs> okay. And living, uh, living the lifestyle only enjoyed by the top echelons of the world's upper class, you say. Uh, Newsom's <laughs> connections have financed every step of his political and business career. Is that wrong? Uh, no, it's absolutely that, truthful. Some of that is accurate, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's all no, accurate. Some of that's that accurate. all no, accurate. But the, the Getty fortune part, yes. No, you just but you're also a wealthy guy, too. Isn't this kind I'm, of like, I've, I've what is the difference? Is this one rich successful. guy cr- criticizing no, another? Or what's the all. difference here? I struggled. I, I had to work my way through college. I didn't get a scholarship. I didn't have... Uh, uh, money to start my own business. Uh, I had to start build capital day by day, every single day. When he needed capital to start a restaurant or a wine shop, where'd he go? Well, you know, he, listen, I don't fault him for that, by the way. Yeah. You know, he did what he should have done. I mean, if he had connections. But you know what? The struggles that I had growing up give me a feeling of empathy for people who are struggling today. Because mm-hmm. I had to worry about where my next meal was coming from. I had to worry about being able to pay the rent. I had to worry about being when able you were, to save money. When you were money. a child? Or when I was young. When you're young. Well, and when I was first married. I mean, I didn't have any resources when I was first married, you know, when I was just starting out in life. So I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to have to work two jobs to work my way through school. You know, Gavin didn't. And more power to him. God love him. You know, that I'm not, I'm not jealous in any means. Mm. All I'm saying is that, you know, he's... He's uh, parading around, establishing himself as the paragon of helping people, and you know he's never lived that struggle like I have, and and I think that's a real important thing. All right, John Cox, thanks for being on. It's all political. Thank you. All right. I'd like to thank John Cox for coming into the Chronicle today to be on It's All Political. I'd like to thank Fernando Diaz, our managing editor for Digital, for producing today's podcast. Because no matter if you're rich or poor or somewhere in the vast middle, it's all political.